Imagine, if you will, a Richard Dawkins or Bill Maurer or Christopher Hitchens type combined with an ISIS fighter. If you can, you might have a good picture of who the Paul the Apostle once was. Imagine, if you will, a human trafficker, misogynist, drunk combined with an MMA fighter. If you can, you might have a good picture of who John Newton, the author of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, once was. Imagine, if you will, a hardcore left-wing professor combined with an LGBTQ activist. If you can, you might have a good picture of who Rosaria Butterfield, the author of the book The Gospel Comes with a House Key, once was. Imagine, if you will, a confused and lost young man who got into more fights before he was 16 than Bruce Lee did, combined with a pot-smoking, Bacardi-drinking desire for self-destruction. If you can, you might have a picture of who I once was. What do we and me and these people have in common is the same thing that any Christian has in common, the experience of the reality coming to understand what verse 15 in our passage this morning proclaims, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the reason that reality could be experienced by any one of us in this room this morning is because Timothy and the early Christians who received this letter from Paul did exactly what Paul asked of them. They waged the good warfare. They guarded the deposit that was given to them. As a church that's celebrating its 50th anniversary year this year, we are inheritors of five decades of men and women, young and old, who did exactly that, some of them still part of our church. We now must ask ourselves, will we do likewise? As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we're given a huge incentive to do so, and it's an incentive that's not built on guilt manipulative arguments, spiritual exploitation, or being strong-armed by Scripture. Rather, the incentive is mercy. But just in case you have a milquetoast idea of what that mercy is, it is a mercy that just doesn't merely let you off the hook. It is a mercy that fuels worship, courage, and change on those who receive it. But here's the rub, and let's address this before we jump into the text. Mercy is one of those great words, arguably made common from a biblical worldview, that kind of falls flat on modern ears. Why that is, is because in order for mercy to be appreciated, one has to realize that you actually need it. If you just Google any good definition of mercy, you'll find it's something about this, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Wow. In a culture that's always demanding its rights like ours, the last thing we think we need is mercy. What we're always being told is to get our due, to demand our rights. And it makes sense, doesn't it? To demand rights is strong. We are correcting an injustice occurred to us. To cry for mercy is weak. We are admitting that we are guilty of committing an injustice. In a world like ours, who wants to seem weak? Who wants to seem vulnerable? That you are at the mercy of another. 
But this is the amazing paradox of the gospel. The one who is willing to see their weakness, to see that they do need mercy, is the ones who are made strong, which is exactly how Paul begins this passage in verse 12. I thank Him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the following nine verses this morning, what we're going to see is a beautiful picture. We're seeing Paul's personal experience of the power of mercy in verses 12 through 14. Then the source of that mercy switches back to Paul being a picture of mercy. And then it concludes with a response to mercy and the responsibilities of mercy that are ours in verses 18 to 20. So we have a lot to cover. Let's jump in by looking at Paul's personal experience of the power of mercy. And Paul begins this passage by expressing his gratitude to God for two things. Number one, God had judged him faithful, and number two, God had placed him into his service. The first observation is this. If you're a note-taker, write this down. God strengthens those who He appoints. That's a takeaway right from verse 12. God always strengthens those who He appoints. Paul, referring to Jesus as our Lord, indicates that this principle is true for all who would believe in Christ. You see, a Christian's true strength, a Christian's real strength, never comes from his or own resources. It's not from our moral fortitude. It's not from our, our spiritual disciplines, though these can help. Our true strength comes from outside of us. Paul repeats this idea, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice just in that, in that one sentence, the what, the how, and the who. Be strengthened, how, by the grace, who is going to do this, that is in Christ Jesus. Paul gets the same similar idea in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. God strengthens those that God appoints. What makes this truly amazing to Paul is that God would do this very thing to him, someone whom, as we heard, is a blasphemer, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of this very one who now is giving him strength. Remember, Paul the apostle was once Saul the Pharisee, the arch enemy of the church whose hatred of Christians was a pure hatred responsible for the murder overseeing the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and many others, no doubt. If you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We see who Paul once was when he was Saul the Pharisee. The Bible talks about Paul or Saul ravaging the church actively seeking to get letters, not just in Jerusalem, but go to the surrounding cities so that he might find any of these people of the way, these Christians, and drag them off into prison. But what changed him? What changed the man that his very name struck fear into the Christians of the first century? Well, Paul tells us, he received mercy. You see that the very second half of verse 13, he received mercy. And in verse 14, in part, shows us what form that mercy took. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace had turned Paul's unbelief in God uh, and hatred toward Christians to a faith in Christ and a love toward Christians. That's how God strengthened Paul. That's how God still strengthens His people today. It still happens today where we are strengthened by the faith and love that comes from Christ. This very past week, I spent time with a Paul from our own congregation. He betrayed and neglected and abused and violated and destroyed his wife and family, all in the name of his own pleasures and the things he wanted to do. Deceived, lied, cheated, and made a mockery of all that is sacred about family all because of his own hubris and lusts. But about a year ago, God had mercy and gave him grace. Grace overflowed to him and gave him faith and love. And even now, as he holds the rubble of his life in his hands, trying to rebuild what he spent years tearing down. But even now, the jury's still out. And his wife is not sure if she's going to stay with them. She may take the kids and leave, and she'd be well within her biblical rights, and he agrees. And as we were talking, he says, but if that happens, I'm going to be the best ex-husband a woman's ever had. His newfound faith and love has come at a great cost, but he's a man forever changed by the power of mercy. And although there are tears just about every time we talk, he is stronger than most men you will meet today. Friend, do you need that kind of strength? The strength to be able to face losing everything you have knowing you have no one to blame other than yourself, and the strength to count it all joy for the treasure of knowing Christ better and better. Do you have that kind of strength? Do you need that kind of strength? Paul says this is where it comes from, crying out for mercy, because that's how Paul got it. The good news is that the source of that mercy is readily available to us all, and that's what Paul draws our attention to there in verse 15. We, we believe that Paul is quoting probably an early church creed and is saying that you can depend on this, you can base your life on this. In fact, you must believe and base your life on this. He says, this saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance, right? It's about five times he says that in the pastoral epistles. So we know that he's drawing from some common axioms amongst the church. Guys, this, is, this saying is real, and it's dependable, and that saying is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the source of mercy. Sinners like me, sinners like you, sinners like this man I was with, sinners like Paul, sinners who recognize they are that very thing. And I know that that concept of being a sinner, it's not very popular in our culture, right? You don't hear people talking about that very often. That's sin is even a mock concept in our culture, right? Other than dessert menus at restaurants, where else do you hear that word used, right? Like as in, this is a sinfully delicious chocolate mousse, right? I mean, other than that, we don't use the word sin. It's kind of mocked, even though it's so very obvious, 
And when we hear sinner, we tend to think of the, the real bad, high-handed sins, right? Like murder, adultery, uh, war, injustice, crime, all those things. And so it's easy if you are not committing those to think, well, that probably doesn't apply to me. But if it's not very obvious to you already, here are a couple ways to know that you are a sinner who needs mercy. Number one, you see other people's shortcomings more often than your own. If you tend to notice how bad off everyone else is and not yourself, then you are a sinner in need of mercy. Number two, you get annoyed, offended, or generally upset about other people's shortcomings more than your own. One of the attributes of sins, my friends, is what we so clearly see in other people, we can so easily be blind to in ourselves. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Once sometimes someone told me, uh, Rick, what what we, we can so clearly see in others, we so readily excuse in ourselves. That's what it means to be a sinner. What we so clearly see in others, we so readily excuse in ourselves. You are a sinner in need of mercy. Number three, you're concerned about yourself before you're concerned about others. Notice the ironic twist that's taken place here. When it comes to judgment, sinful tendencies seem to put others first. When it comes to salvation, our sinful tendencies seem to put us first. You know you are a sinner and in need of mercy if you're concerned about yourself before you're concerned about others. Number four, you don't think you are a sinner or in need of mercy. If you don't think you are a sinner in need of mercy, you are a sinner in need of mercy. And to make it plainly clear, if I haven't made the point enough, you have a pulse. So. If you have a pulse, you are a sinner in need of mercy. The point is clear here that that's all of us. That's all of us, and the way we receive the mercy is recognizing that we need it. Friends, and if you can accept the bad news that you are a sinner in need of mercy, then listen to the good news of what verse 15 says. Paul later writes, and I am the foremost of sinners. Paul's using some logic. If God's mercy can find the foremost of sinners faithful and have grace overflow to him to change him, then Paul says it's there for anyone. And that's exactly the point he makes in verse 16 as he uses himself as a very picture of that mercy. Notice for the second time in these nine verses, Paul says, I received mercy. But this time, it's not simply his own personal change and benefit of what mercy's done in his life. That's what verses 12 through 14 record for us. Now, Paul was a recipient of mercy for a secondary, more universal reason so that his life the life of a blasphemer, the life of a persecutor, the life of an insolent opponent of God might be the picture, the evidence, if you will, of the utmost patience of God. See, the word display there, when he's talking about how Christ might display his perfect patience, means to sketch out, kind of to draw something out, how patient, how kind, how forbearing God is so that all who might believe would realize God's grace can overflow to them just like it did to Paul as he recorded in verse 14. 
Uh, I, think, I, know, I know we're in verse 16, but look at that word in verse 14, the word that, uh, the Greek word behind, overflow, is a word very unique to Paul. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the entire Greek New Testament. As best as we can find, this unique word only appears two other times in all of secular uh, extant literature of that time period. And it's probably some, uh, kind of something that was coined either by Paul or some very few people used it. And the idea behind the word, although it's translated as overflowed, the original has more the meaning of a super over-the-top awesomeness of something. It is a word that he cannot quite express. It's a word that reminds me of my friend Mike Woods about overflowing in abundance. Uh, when we were young men, uh, we didn't have much money, so when 7-Eleven had specials on particularly ice cream that Mike liked, it was one of the soft-serve yogurt ice cream, the deal was for a dollar you could have as much ice cream as you could fit. And for most people, that just means a nice, good-sized ice cream cold. But Mike was this kind of guy that he knew the, the proportionate strength relative to the distance of the cone to the pressure of the valve of the soft serve of where to put it so that when you open it full crank, it would pack as much ice cream into the bottom, right? Now, as if that wasn't enough, the reason he did that was he could pour the ice cream and keep it going and knew how to counterbalance it as it come out and it go as far as possible. And then he would walk that ice cream cone over, put his dollar down, and like walk out with this thing perfectly balanced, and that was his ice cream cone. When I think of the grace of God overflowing, I see Mike Woods at the 7-Eleven soft serve, I mean, just working that machine to get an overflowing dose of what he loves so much. And Paul says, God's grace overflowed in this way to him and to all because Christ Jesus is Lord of all, and particularly those who put their faith in him. That grace overflows, and we see it here in four ways. Let me draw your attention to them because they're kind of hidden into the text. Number one, that grace overflows in salvation from our sin. Friends, let me read you. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. Go to Titus. Let's jump into Titus chapter 3 for a moment. Titus chapter 3. Just a couple pages to the right. We're picking up Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 3. And look what he says, going to verse 7. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out, there's that concept again, poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, go to the left. Uh, Adam read this to us, it's so good. Uh, actually, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, I just want to point something out. You might be reading these passages and say, well, they're describing really horrible people. That's not me. But did you notice Titus talks about the pleasures of what we're doing. Paul's writing about the passions of our flesh. These are people that were enjoying what they were doing. These are people like you and I, among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here comes the beauty of it in verse 4, but God, being rich in what? Mercy. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, it's hard to read passages about mercy or grace without reading the one or the other because mercy is the forgiveness of our sins when what we deserve is judgment and grace is the imputed righteousness of Christ to our account. Friends, let's be clear on this. Your salvation, if you're a Christian, is not just your sins are forgiven. That would just make you morally neutral. You are forgiven of all your sins because of His rich mercy, and not just that, but the entire righteousness of Jesus Himself placed to your account. You are all the way in the plus side. That's the gospel, friends. It is not that your sins have been forgiven and now you're morally neutral and now you just got to work at it and keep it up the rest of your life. It's that you are forgiven and now you have the righteousness of Christ, the law perfectly satisfied by Christ for us. I've often said it, we are saved by works. It's just not our works that save us. It's the work of Christ. So our salvation from sin, right? Verse 15, we saw that very clearly. But we also see in our text, go back to 1 Timothy, the benefits of mercy, what are they? It is not just salvation from sin, but union with Christ in the, in the sphere of faith and love. So I love the way the New Living Translation renders verse 14. I think they do a great job of helping interpret it so we can read it clearly. This is the way they translate it. How generous and gracious our Lord was. Amen. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. I think that is a very good translation of what Paul is saying in verse 14. The ESV translates it really well, but I think for the sake of, of, of linguistic style, the meaning gets lost. The way they translate it is, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's good. But do you see what the New Living Translation is trying to tease out? They're trying to tell us that we have been filled with faith and love. We're changed, and that comes, the source of that is from Jesus. Friends, what a great promise for those of you who want to change. For those of you who want to be different, Christ can make you so. I want you to grasp what Paul is saying, that when mercy is poured out on us, it, part of the mercy is that we're changed. Do you realize part of the mercy of salvation is you're saved from yourself, right? We're saved from sin, hallelujah, but the great thing about it is you're saved from you. 
And part of that salvation is being seen in verse 14, that very, the very faith and love that finds its source in Christ is filling us. Friends, what that tells you is there ought to be a noticeable trajectory of Christ-likeness in your life. There ought to be some kind of growth, however imperceptible it might be, but there ought to be a trajectory of becoming more like Jesus because He is filling you with faith and love, just like Paul, who is a picture for all of us to see of the utmost patience of God. So take heart that He's very patient, but also take challenge that you have been filled with the faith and love that is in Christ to be different. Number three, um, another benefit of this mercy and grace is eternal life through faith in Him. Verse 16 makes that very clear. Eternal is not just talking about the duration of that life, but the quality of that life. It is eternal, indestructible, imperishable. Friends, and, and my older friends and saints, you, you, wouldn't you like to get back to a state of life when you are imperishable and indestructible, right? Where we're all not that way, but when we're younger, we think we are. When we're older, we realize we're not. But in Christ, we have an imperishable duration, an imperishable and eternal life. It's not just time, it's quality. And that's ours in Christ. And then fourth and finally, not to mention, being counted worthy and placed into His service. Friends, having a meaningful life. Rollo May, one of the uh, psychiatrists I spent a lot of years studying and reading, he, he was brilliant. Uh, he said, the problem is that most people are satisfied to live on scraps of meaning. And so they get into their hobbies or their trades, and for a moment that gives their lives purpose and meaning, but it bores them. It gets tired and old, and they jump into the next thing, and they never dip back into the existential foundation that they're searching for meaning, and they're settling for scraps. Paul says, I've been counted worthy and put into his service. Friends, when you are in Christ, there is a role for you to fulfill. It is not about this world. The end of it is not here. It goes on into eternity, and you must have that perspective. Now, the thing you're doing now, whatever it might be, if in 10 years it doesn't matter a hill of beans, should it matter so much now? Right? Think about the way you're using your now. Will it make a difference then? If it's not, then reconsider how much of your energy and your life you're putting into it now. And that across the board on everything we do, right? Because we were not made for this world. We were made for another. And Paul is reminding us of that. That's one of the blessings of mercy and grace. So with all this in mind, it's only natural to see Paul's response to mercy in verse 17 when he cries out, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Of course, he's not done, but the point is he cannot help but burst into praise over God. Friends, there is no other metric or indicator more sure than you have come to understand mercy than such heartfelt, unbounded praise. That's how you know God is in your life. It's not that you listen to a lot of Christian radio. It's not that you have a tight theological system. It's not that you have spiritual gifts. It's not that you attend many Bible studies. It's that there's this genuine, heartfelt, purposeful, deliberate, erupting praise from God from your soul. But it's not emotionalism, right? I, I don't want you to think that, that this means emotionalism. I'm not. Although, 
if you've realized you've received mercy and you didn't deserve it, there's going to be an emotional content to it, right? That that should be there at some point. But I want you to notice that Paul's praise, as all of Paul's praise in the New Testament, and friends, mark this, whenever you read a dense portion of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, and you're not understanding what's going on, that's okay, just look a couple verses where Paul will erupt in praise. In other words, theology always leads to doxology. Heady Christianity must be fueled by a heartful Christianity, right? It always, for Paul, whenever he goes into the deep things of God, he has to take a break and just give God praise and glory. That's how you know you're actually experiencing God when it responds in this kind of worship that is full, notice Paul, full of content, meaning, and intention, right? Notice that of Paul, always when you read Paul's praise, it's full of content, it's rich, it's deep, he knows God. There's a meaning for it, and there's an intentionality. So he says, as he recognizes God as king, and guys, that's a hard one for us when we were a nation founded on overthrowing a king, right? We, we, our president, we don't like him, we're going to, you know, get him out of office or whatever it is. The idea of recognizing God as king comes with it, this notion of sovereignty. When you live under a monarchy and the king tells you jump, you just ask how high, right? How many times? There's a recognition that he is the authority, he's the sovereign, and he follows it up with two attributes of God, immortal. In other words, he cannot. In fact, he will not die and invisible. Now, Paul unpacks what he means by invisible um, later in this book, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, looking at what he says, who alone has immortality, there's that same concept, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. So Paul seems to be taking a play out of John's writings. John talks about the glory of God and the splendor of God being this pure light that we cannot perceive. So I'm not so sure the Bible is, is stipulating that God is like Casper the friendly ghost in that he's invisible, as much as there is a radiance of his glory so grand you cannot perceive it. He is invisible in that way simply because we cannot perceive His glory. Friends, so wrapping and kind of coming full circle, far from making you weak and vulnerable, asking for mercy makes you strong because you realize where true strength and power reside. It is in this eternal King whose honor and dominion and glory cannot be ended. That brings a strength to you, more importantly, you realize that that strength is for you, not against you. That'll make you strong. Friends, that will make you strong. When you realize all of what Paul is talking about, his dominion, the dominion of God, his honor and glory, such that we cannot even perceive with the naked eye, is for you, gives you strength. And yet it humbles you. See, this is something that, another paradox of the gospel that the world just cannot wrap their mind around. On the one hand, isn't the gospel message one of the most kind of humbling, ego-deflating realities you can actually grapple with? Because you know you don't deserve any mercy. Whether you're a first century Pharisee or a 21st century soccer mom or something in between, we fall short. We don't measure up. We don't deserve this mercy that we are receiving. That's very humbling. 
But on the other hand, the gospel exalts us because God, this one with eternal dominion and power, has set His affections on you and found you worthy in Christ and wants to put you into His family, into His service. He wants to pour His grace upon you. So as a result, friends, we're not the kind of people that demand our rights, but we're also not the kind of people that just grovel on the floor. We respond by recognizing the reality of who God is, worthy of all glory and honor, gladly giving Him praise and worship. That's what mercy tends to do to you, right? In in some sense, some, some glimpse, some almost profane example of that We've talked about this. Is, I don't see it as much anymore because we don't have cable, but I still think there are those companies that show up on people's doors with a big check with lots of money, right? That still probably happens. Or maybe, maybe there was that show, Extreme Makeover. Whenever someone's the recipient of grandiose, uh, in this world, material goods, what's the response? Joy, tears, gratitude. Now, in a very profane way, That's the response that Paul is having to the mercy of God shown to him. That should be our response. Now, I'm not naive to uh, culture and psychology, so that's going to show differently for everyone. Not everyone's as effusive or gregarious. Some of you are more laid back. You're more relaxed. And I like hanging out with you kind of people because it balances me out. But there should be a current of genuine strength and confidence in Christ and joy and a deep resounding gratitude that changes you fundamentally, softens your edges, makes you merciful and generous because you receive what greatness and goodness you've received. Finally, so that's the response to mercy. We end with these responsibilities of mercy in verses 18 to 20. Notice Paul ends this chapter with the same words and commands that he began with. Do you notice that? Verse 3, he starts by saying, Timothy, I charge you. And then verse 18, he wraps up saying the same thing. Verse 18, he says, this charge I entrust to you. And then he kind of has this comment about Timothy, but let's skip that parenthetical comment and pick it up. This charge I entrust to you, that by them, the prophecies made about you, you may wage the good warfare. Friends, we've gotten a a taste of what Paul has in mind by the warfare that he's referring to just in this first chapter of 1 Timothy, the fight for truth against error, the true gospel of grace against legalistic or antinomian tendencies, making too much or too little of God's law, swerving from a pure heart, not confessing our sins, allowing our desires to corrupt our grasp of the faith and leading to compromised lives. In fact, Paul's telling us how we wage the warfare. Look back in your text. Wage the good warfare. Notice the very first word in verse 19, for you grammar nuts, that's a participle form. That's modifying how you wage the warfare. So how do we wage the warfare? Holding faith. Here it's not so much a reference to the personal subjective trust we have in God as much as it is the content of the faith. Holding faith and a good conscience. Both the content of the gospel as well as living in conduct of the gospel. So hold, this is how you wage the warfare. You get a grasp of the gospel and you do your best to live by it. 
Friends, if, if abandoning the gospel could happen to Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were likely elders in the Ephesian church here, it can happen to any one of us. So Paul says, take this charge seriously. Wage the warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. Build up your understanding of the faith. Be accountable to others for the way you live. I said a couple weeks ago, in other words, be a student of the Bible. Be a member of a church. Don't be AWOL. Be engaged. Actively appreciate the power of mercy in your life by doing these things, learning all you can about the gospel and conforming your life to fit it as much as you can. And you can't do that in isolation. Do it in community. Do it together. And this is how we wage the good warfare. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the power of mercy. Father, that is what we need constantly to be reminded of, Lord, and we thank you that everyone here who calls the name of Christ knows what it is to receive mercy. And if we have forgotten, forgive us. Father, forgive us of forgetting mercy and forgive us from allowing mercy and grace to do its transforming work to increase our faith in you and our love for one another. Father, we thank you that there have been Christians through the millennia who have been faithful to wage this warfare. We thank you that there have been Christians for five decades who have been faithful. Father, as we inherit the work of 50 years of gospel faithfulness here, we pray that you would enable us by your faithfulness to wage the good warfare for the power of mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.